welcome to another episode of Web Dev Weekly, the weekly podcast about web development. I'm no, Brad Garropy. No, no. This is welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a weekly podcast about web development and design, Brad. Y'all stop playing favorites. <laughs> this is a mashup episode. And so we got to start, you know, just picking favorites about other things, not which podcast is the best. We've also got Amy here. Do you want to kick it off, Amy, by introducing yourself? Totally. Hi, my name is Amy Dutton. I am a senior UI UX designer and front end developer. James? Yeah, I'm a opinionated JavaScript developer, speaker, and teacher. Brad, what about you on the Web Dev Weekly side? Yeah, I am a front-end developer at Adobe and content creator and side project connoisseur. Richard? And I'm Richard Gottlieber. I don't know how I describe myself. I write code, mostly Haskell right now. And if you don't know what that is, because this is a show about web development, don't go looking at Haskell. It's terrible and very weird. Sold. <laughs> so this week, I think that we wanted to take some time to just get into our favorites. Let's kick it off by picking our favorite, not Haskell language, but maybe front-end framework. Who wants to kick that one off? You said you're opinionated, James. Go for it. What's your favorite front-end framework? I'm going to pull a surprise. I don't really believe this is my favorite, but I do like this more than I think most people would expect. So I'm going to go completely off the wall from something that I would typically say because I assume other people will have similar opinions. So I'm going to start with Angular. And I'll tell you the things I like about Angular. I see the shock on people's faces here. So I started my programming career in college with Java and C Sharp. And I was honestly like as much JavaScript as I do now, like I was terrified of JavaScript. It's basically a free for all. Like you can do kind of whatever you want. So I miss those strong typings, like having all that IntelliSense and stuff, which has gotten better now in VS Code and JavaScript. But I'll give you some of the benefits I like in Angular. It comes with TypeScript. So you have the strong typing right there, which is nice. TypeScript has gotten so much more popular. And I think a big reason for that is because of it being embedded into Angular. I like the services in Angular. It's also one of the things I like about Svelte, but services in Angular give you the ability to have like shared state and they're really pretty easy to set up. And so those are a few things that I like in addition to the fact that it just has a lot of stuff baked in. You don't have to reach as much externally for outside packages. A lot of the stuff is just kind of right there ready for you to use. Now, I will clarify again, this is not necessarily my real answer, but I'm giving you a little bit different take on what my favorite framework would be for the time being. Brad, what about you? What is your favorite framework? You know, I'm going to pick, I feel like the, the popular kid in school. I'm going to pick React, but honestly, mostly because I've built a lot of tools for myself around React. I've got a ton of starter projects for like Next.js and Gatsby websites. I've got all these mini little libraries of React hooks and React components, and it just makes me feel really at home and productive when working in that framework. Amy, what about yourself? What do you think? Yeah, my answer is going to sound pretty similar. I actually started with Vue and got my bearings and then jumped over to React, mainly because that's what we're using at work. I was doing a lot of WordPress development and the Gutenberg editor is built on React. So it made sense because it complemented the work I was already doing. And then just recently, I've started to dip my toes into Svelte, but I'm not to the point where I feel comfortable with Svelte yet for me to be a total fan kid about it. So I would have to agree that React is my favorite, mainly just because I'm the most comfortable in it and I can work the fastest in it. Richard, what about you? Tell us about the most modern framework built with Haskell. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to say Svelte because it's the new kid on the block and I really enjoy it. The main reason, it's just so clean and simple. My dad's a college professor. He wrote a textbook called Excellent HTML, followed by the sequel, Even More Excellent HTML. And like back in the day, you know, it was like HTML and CSS. And so 
It's felt just feels like that to me. Maybe I'm biased because it's a compiled language and you were joking about Haskell, but being compiled brings with it a bunch of benefits as well. And so the overall dev experience feels so good that I really enjoy it. Now, not having used it professionally, maybe my opinion would change, but for personal stuff and for just having fun, I really enjoy it. When I popped it open, that was the nice part was, oh, I have a script block. Oh, I have a styles block. And it just felt more at home, even with those two little tags. One of the things that Vue and Angular had in common that I feel like is a low-key benefit that I really liked was more powerful CLIs. You know, Vue has Vue CLI, Angular has NG CLI. Mm -hmm. I can do a lot of really cool things. React and Svelte don't have any of that kind of stuff. So I appreciated it when I saw it in those other frameworks. Yeah, that's true. The Angular scaffolding tools for generating yeah. components and services and things is actually really nice. And now that you mentioned this, I'm kind of mind blown that those types of tools don't exist in these other frameworks. And also Vue has not only Vue CLI, but they have a GUI associated with it too. So you can actually run the command from the CLI, it loads up a web page. You can see the local projects that you have. I think you can start and stop them and install dependencies and stuff. I don't know that it's something I really need because I could do all that from the terminal, but it's a cool addition to the Vue CLI tools as well. I actually had to build my own scaffolding tools for React. Another reason why I just feel productive, right? It's very tailored to my use cases. I wish people could have seen our videos as we started to talk about Svelte, though. I'll like double down on how <laughs> I don't think any of us are using this on a daily basis, but all of us have that little bit of excitement and all of us were nodding our heads in agreement of like Svelte is pretty cool. It's the new kid on the block. It's exciting. It feels easy and familiar. And we'll see what that leads to in the next couple of years. I think too, for new developers, even though it's a framework, it gets out of the way so much that you don't have to learn the framework. There's a few syntactic sugary things, but other than that, I think that lends itself to making it easy to pick up as a new framework. Because if you already know web development, like, oh, this is everything that I already know. And if you're starting out, like it's a great place to start too, because it's very basic to begin with. Well, think about it in React, just to iterate over some data, you have to know JavaScript and the array.map method. That's a barrier to entry right there. Although you should be learning JavaScript prior to trying React, but something like Svelte, you don't really have that problem. You just have those HTML template things that allow you to iterate over your data. And it really does remove all the barriers to entry. All right, I'll throw in an opinionated stance on this one, Brad. So doing maps to iterate through things in React looks a little tedious, sometimes it's a little unnatural, but here's the benefit of it for me. Assuming you either know JavaScript or learning JavaScript, that directly translates to being able to write a map inside of JSX, right? Like it's a little weird, it's a little uncomfortable, but it is just regular JavaScript at that point. The flip side of that is even with Vue or Angular or Svelte, those template tags or iteration things, they're like custom to that framework. So you have to learn more specific syntax to the framework versus just using JavaScript. And I don't know if we have... I don't know if we have a question on this coming up or not, but styled components, one of the benefits of that for me is I don't have to learn separate syntax for something like SAS. I can basically use JavaScript, which I already know how to do. So even though it's a little weird, it's a little quirky inside of JSX, it's still just regular JavaScript that I know and love and use every day. I feel you. And that's a good segue into another question that James alluded to is maybe what's your favorite CSS methodology or what's your favorite way of writing CSS? Richard, I'll let you kick it off. I'm sorry, Amy. So not having a ton of experience like doing design work and front-end work at the beginning of my career, I really like Tailwind. And the reason I like Tailwind is because it gives you a lot of that nice design stuff built in. Now, you can still make a monster 
of a website with it that just looks terrible. But you have the best practices baked in. And to me, I really like that. On the flip side, though, going back to being a Svelte fanboy, I like just the basic CSS and Svelte and like having it right there in whatever you're making. So I kind of go back and forth between Tailwind and then just plain CSS. That's how I'd go. What about you, Amy? I was going to say, I don't think you have to apologize. I do like Tailwind. Same reason that you said was that it has good design principles built in. When I've built sites on it, the biggest difference I can tell is in my vertical rhythm. So for anybody listening, that just has to do with your spacing vertically. Usually when you're building out a website, you think more of spacing horizontally, but with Tailwind, they have these built-in rim units. And so even the vertical spacing feels nice and tight. But my favorite methodology is actually SAS. And so I'm usually lean on styled components because I can tap into a lot of those features that I do like about SAS. Nesting is huge for me. I love having that ampersand is a special character within SAS where you can reference the parent element. I really like that. And I really like how they handle variables within style components. And you can use JavaScript to do math and computations and pass in variables. So that part feels really good to me. Brad, what about you? You know, I waffle on this quite a bit. I was a pretty hardcore styled components fanboy there for a while. But then I realized after CSS custom properties came out, the only reason I was still using styled components was the fact that it made my React components feel like single file components because I could co-locate the styles right next to my render method, essentially. But when I finally let go of that grip, at the end of the day, vanilla CSS with CSS modules is what I landed on. My primary concern is that it's scoped CSS to that component. And my secondary concern, if at all possible, would be to co-locate the styles, which isn't doable at that point. But CSS Custom Properties gives you all the same flexibility that was used to with style components without the runtime overhead. James, how do you do your CSS? Yeah, I'm probably not super opinionated. If I walk into a project and one of these things is already in place, I'm probably good with it. Style components, I think, again, going back to like syntax, anything where I can continue to reuse JavaScript logic, that's a plus for me. I can literally write a function to dynamically change some sort of style tag, depending on like a prop in style components. And I think that's pretty cool. I love Tailwind as well. Like Richard, I think it just gives you so much design consistency and it gives you this style guide that you just follow. I think that's really cool. I actually posted on Twitter today a poll of how do people do CSS? And I did CSS modules, styled components, and Tailwind. And then I got five comments and people were like, what about regular vanilla CSS? So I think that sometimes gets overlooked as well. But I'm glad to hear some people have already mentioned CSS has added so many features and things with CSS variables that like it's becoming even more viable than I think it had been in the past to just use vanilla CSS by itself. And Amy, nesting is actually coming to CSS. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. On the horizon. Yeah. I don't know how long that'll take. They're moving pretty quick now. I noticed that nobody said anything like bootstrap or foundation or naming methodologies like BEM. Somebody want to take a guess at maybe why those are falling out of favor? I started off using bootstrap and foundation and moved off just because I was overriding more styles than I was creating and just feel like those libraries add a lot of bloat. I know you can pull out different pieces that you want, but the main piece I was leaning on, at least with foundation, was their grid system. And with CSS grid, I can roll my own in three lines of code. There's really no need to have that anymore. And I think now that we're moving much more towards a component-driven front-end architecture, the way Bootstrap provides its components isn't quite as compatible with your React component model. So languages right i wonder if there's any shocker here 
if we had to talk about our favorite programming language, I guess let's just get out of the way. Does anyone have anything other than JavaScript to say? I think we're all JavaScript fans here. I can pick a fight here and say CSS. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please pick that fight. CSS is a language. Tell us why now. Uh, those... Twitter comments always get me. I do love CSS though, because without it, none of this stuff would look good. Have you seen what people make with it? It's unbelievable. Crazy. Like, unbelievable. Mad respect to like Jay Hay or anybody who does like CSS art or generative art. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. CSS is like wizardry. I feel like not competent, but dangerous with it. And when you see Jay Hay, like you mentioned, that stuff is like, what on earth is happening? It is the stuff that goes on with that. And then there's a Cassie who has like some CS. Cassie Evans. Yes. Thank you, Brad. Like her stuff is amazing too. And it's mind boggling to me, like not being well-versed in CSS personally. So I would say favorite language for me is not JavaScript. It's Haskell. It depends. I'm going to ignore that comment. It depends on what we're doing, right? So I would pick, like, we have a couple lists out here. Rust is awesome. I've been messing a lot with it lately, and I really like it because it feels a lot like friendly Haskell. So Haskell is rough to deal with, and Rust is like a friendly version of Haskell. But if I want to just think in code easily, I'd pick Python because Python just feels like pseudocode to me. And I think that's why like interviews and stuff like that, you always see people using Python because it's like you just write pseudocode and you've written a Python program, <laughs> which is really nice. I totally feel you there. Like one of my first languages was Python and I loved it because it was very free. And like you said, it felt like writing English statements. And then I learned JavaScript, which was also untyped, wild, free. And uh, that was awesome. But I got to say my favorite language now is TypeScript. I feel safe and warm and comfy inside of a TypeScript project because the editor is basically telling me what I'm doing. When I'm writing out a variable or accessing some of its properties, it's like, here you go, Brad, just pick one of these. You don't have to think very hard. It's like college Brad with long hair grew up and put on a suit and tie, and now he has TypeScript. That's right. And honestly, I think at the end of the day, if you put in a little bit of that extra work up front, you get to be lazy for the rest of the project. You know what I mean? And I just love it. That's my number one pick. So Brad, I don't have a ton of hands-on experience with TypeScript. I know I've used it a little bit. I know what it's for. I know the benefits it gives you. Obviously, going back to like my experience in Java and C Sharp and strong typing and that kind of stuff. I think this setup is like my worry with TypeScript and my flawed view of the developer world because I just work on like YouTube videos. I don't really write big production code anymore. So what about the setup for you? How cumbersome is setting up a project with TypeScript and then also maintaining it in TypeScript where you're having to create all of your new interfaces as you add models and that sort of stuff. What is the startup configuration and maintenance like for you from a TypeScript perspective? I would relate writing a TS config file a lot to writing a Webpack configuration. It seems so big and so scary up front, but like Webpack config ultimately comes down to two values. Same thing with TS config. It's very straightforward when you know which properties to hone in on. Once you have it set up, and assuming you already have a build system, it's pretty easy to hook into pretty much anything. Webpack has TS Loader, Vite supports TypeScript out of the box. All of the React frameworks, Gatsby and Next support TypeScript out of the box. So it's basically a no config situation unless you want something custom. Now moving on from there, you asked about the work you have to put in to type your main objects and things like that. Once you do it once, that's it. That type lives and you import it in other parts of your application and it gets infinitely easy from then on. I think the difficulty really comes if you walk into like a full project that is completely untyped 
and you're tasked with typing the whole thing. That can be pretty tough. But what's cool is TypeScript is incrementally adoptable. So like if you don't want a file to be type checked, just keep it as .js. And there's a flag in tsconfig that says allow JS. And so you don't have to type a file until you're ready. Or TypeScript has ignore commands like ESLint does where you can just say, I don't care about this for now, or I'm just going to make it any or unknown. And that's ways to get around typing something for the time being. I feel like when I've started with TypeScript, I had so many of those. I'm just going to get around it with any. And Amy, I know you did a stream recently where you had a guest on to help convert. Was it the compressed FM site to TypeScript? Yeah. Is that what you were working on? Do you want to talk about That's the experience, right. like what your thoughts were for that? Yeah. So shout out to Dustin Lee for jumping on the stream and helping me figure all that stuff out. And he's been great too, for me, just within Discord and answering different questions that I have. But I started going through Scott Talinsky's course on Level Up Tuts. He has two of them, just a generic TypeScript course. And then he has one specifically TypeScript for React and went through those prior to the stream just so I had some kind of understanding of what we were doing. And after the stream, I officially converted over another project and I was amazed at how easy it was. I think TypeScript has this misconception that it's super hard and you have to type all these things. But what surprised me is TypeScript will actually make a lot of assumptions for you in a good way. So the main thing when I was converting over a React project was I was just defining the props. That was the biggest thing. I'd already defined prop types, declarations within my file. And so the way that TypeScript handles that is actually easier to read and less code than what I was doing for my prop types. So to me, that was just an easy win. Plus it's caught far more errors within my code, things that I didn't even know weren't correct. It would catch those for me. Yeah. And I think Wes and Scott refer to this quite a bit on Syntax FM where there's like levels of TypeScript development. There's the common man or the common woman's way of using TypeScript, which is like you're typing things as a string or a number or maybe creating your own object type. And then there's this really wild way of using TypeScript where it still baffles me. I just don't understand how people do stuff like this. It gets wild when there's like generics and inherited types and all sorts of things that can make it very complex. But as with anything else you're learning, you got to start small and build your way up. What made a difference for me as I've been picking it up is that it's very similar to GraphQL. It had a very similar flavor because with GraphQL, you go in and you define what each variable is in terms of whether it's a string, number, Boolean, integer, whatever. And so a lot of the syntax felt similar once I started writing it. Want to pause just in case I was going to see if Richard had any TypeScript thoughts. <laughs> no. Richard backs out of the TypeScript conversation. Brad, go. I mean, if you want to talk about strongly typed stuff, we can go back to Haskell again and talk about some monads, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I do Haskell out of necessity. <laughs> so from the front end perspective, TypeScript and I don't have much experience together, but on the back end, Dino has been awesome and I've enjoyed that a lot. And speaking of backends, I don't know, does anybody have any opinions on backend frameworks that they want to talk about? I'll say that I've been using GraphQL a little bit more lately. Mostly as a consumer, but I've written a few GraphQL servers. And like Amy was saying, there's a really natural typed interface with GraphQL. And you can use tools to actually generate types from your GraphQL schema that can be consumed by both your backend and your frontend, if your backend is in JavaScript or TypeScript, of course. And so I just think it works really well in that whole JavaScript on the frontend and backend ecosystem. So GraphQL is going to be my pick for what I would write something on the backend in. 
One that I think is pretty cool bringing in Angular in the conversation to kick this off is Nest.js, not to be confused with Next.js, also not to be confused with Nux.js. There's so many of these that are very similar. But Nest.js is a backend framework built on top of Node that has basically the same sort of structure and breakdown that Angular has. So it has TypeScript by default and has the different components and things that build up into modules the same way that Angular does. I will say I haven't really used this very much myself, but I do like the rigid structure that it has. Again, going back to the benefits of just TypeScript, like this has an opinionated way of how to organize your code and gives you like the bumper lanes on a bowling line, right? It helps guide you down the path that you want to go. And some of that, just like with TypeScript, there's more boilerplate code that you have to write, but it also gives you that lane that you can just follow down. So that's been one of the ones, if I were to start a new backend project, especially if I was working with a team and wanted to have that structure, Nest.js is one that I would seriously take a look at. I'm for anything that has a GraphQL JavaScript feel to it. It just makes it easier to process those components on the front end. And this is coming from WordPress experience where you're having to render everything on page load. So I love that I can pull all that content, know what I'm expecting to get from the server and being able to process that easily. So I've done a little bit of experimentation with Supabase and Prisma and Keystone JS, and all three of those have just been fantastic in terms of what they provide you with. Amy, you mentioned Supabase. I've said this many times. Like I feel like I'm irrationally excited about Supabase. It's a very exciting platform, but I feel like I don't have the reason to be as excited about it as I am. And what it is, it's an open source alternative to Firebase. And I just think that's so cool from a couple of people, like a very small team builds a product that then enables like developers across the world to build out their app ideas in a very concise way. Cause it can do everything, right? It can do your database. It can do authentication. It can do real time streaming. It can do storage for images and stuff like that. I just think that's so cool, especially from a small team to come out with a product like that. So Superbase has definitely been on my radar to use a lot more in the near future. I got to ask though, James, I'm a big cheapskate. And one thing I love about Firebase, the closed source alternative to Supabase, is that <laughs> they provide like an awesome free tier for Firebase applications. So when I think about Supabase, I'm like, awesome, it's open source. I have to host it myself. That means I have to pay for a DigitalOcean droplet. Do they have hosting plans or is that something that's up to the user to go figure out? Yeah, so you don't have to host anything yourself. So for like their database specifically, they can host the database for you. So you can actually use Supabase just as a Postgres provider. So like you could go to Heroku and create a Postgres database there, or you could just use Supabase and just use the database there. One of the things I've been doing recently, and Amy mentioned this too, is I've used Supabase more or less just as a Postgres database. I've used Prisma as an ORM, that's an object relational mapping or mapper or whatever. It's basically an abstraction layer above a database so that you can have a standard API to work with and then potentially swap out the database behind the scenes and not have to change any code. So that has been a really cool pairing. And then in addition to that, because I've been working on this JQQ memes thing where I'll take random images of me and YouTube videos and let people create a meme out of it. I can also store, like if people create those, I can store those memes in storage in Superbase as well. All of that is managed and hosted through them on a free tier at this point. So I think you could probably get away with the things based on people can't see this, but Brad's eyes just got big. You could probably get away with whatever you're thinking on a free tier, at least to get started. Okay, that's awesome. That was my number one holdup on Superbase. I thought they were like, here's your application code, go figure out where to host it. It's great to know that they're thinking about hobbyist developers. 
Yeah. And I'll double down on the, the cheapskate developer too. My favorite feature of the Jamstack, I think, is I can build anything with a free tier across so many different services. That's probably my number one thing is I can build an entire application, not at scale, but I can build it and test it out and have it out there for free across a bunch of different services. Yeah, for sure. Like you can build anything for cheap or free on the Jamstack. So in that light, let's talk about our favorite side projects. Who wants to go first? I just have so many. It's like picking your favorite child. <laughs> Tell us your top 10 of your side projects, Amy. Start us off. Oh my goodness. I have 10 going on right now. My favorite side project lately has been creating either these one-off landing pages for different libraries that I'm thinking about dropping or say landing pages for the community. So I did the JQQ memes design for James that he mentioned earlier on the stream. I had a community member drop in and I helped him uh, actually, this is Avnish. He created this chat cube application for a hackathon. He actually won the hackathon. So I helped him polish up the design. But those have been so fun for me and just so energizing because they haven't necessarily been tied to a business with existing brand guidelines and use cases. They've just been fun. I've had a lot more freedom and been able to experiment creatively on what those look like. I'll pick somebody. James. Yeah, I think my stuff is actually related to the JQQ meme stuff. Amy kind of worked on this design for a landing page and it started from like, I would post freeze frame images, random ones from when I would edit my videos, I would just take a freeze frame clip of the random image of me looking like really odd and awkward because I was like in the middle of saying something and I would post it on Twitter and just say like, caption this, people have fun. And I thought, why don't we just make that a thing? And so Amy designed like a landing page. And then we started talking about like, all right, how would I create like an actual meme generator where it could show an image of me and then overlay text on top. And that got into HTML canvas. And then Amy wanted to battle and do it in SVG instead. Cause he's just the SVG, what a like outspoken person of the world <laughs> <Snob>. award. <laughs> SVG snob is her thing. And so it got into this kind of cool thing where we were both trying to figure out like what would be the easiest way to create a landing page that can do other things, but also give the ability for a user to cycle through a series of images of me that are really awkward and then overlay text on top of them. And that was a lot of fun. And so the thing that I've been experimenting with recently that I mentioned is using Superbase Prisma as the ORM and then Stripe to integrate payments. And I don't know exactly what the paywall is going to be but I'm going to have some sort of pay me a dollar and you'll be able to choose from like 50 images of me versus just like three that you can cycle through to create your memes or something like that. So that's been really cool. Like experimenting with this new technologies that I've heard of for a long time or Stripe's not new, but it's just something I haven't actually used until recently to try out. So it's been really cool to have an excuse to write code and experiment with stuff that's new. And hopefully I'll have something show with a dollar paywall for people to give me all their money in the near future. That's the dream, right? My side projects lately have been like a desert. So we recently moved and then trying to start school. I don't know. I live in Texas and school right now in Texas is, uh, yeah, an interesting proposition. So my side projects have like dried up of late, but I will say doing a portfolio website for my wife for some art stuff that she was doing was probably one of my favorite ones recently. One, because it was easy to get super fast feedback. It was like slide the laptop over. What do you think about this? Slide it back away you go. That was awesome. And two, the feedback was pretty easy to get and not wrapped in weird, like, oh, well, maybe just a little bit this way or whatever. It was pretty transparent. So that was helpful. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't had a lot of side projects lately. It's kind of sad. I have been looking into Rust and the reason for that is getting into crypto space from a development side. And that's been very interesting 
and a really deep journey to understand that stuff because whew, it's like an entire new world. But it's been interesting. I don't have enough knowledge to do a side project yet, right? I'm still like in the learning tutorial phase there. Brad, side projects, you don't like them. So we can just skip you, right? I'm the self-dubbed side project connoisseur. But I'm with you though. Lately, my side projects have been a little bit lackluster. Got a lot of stuff going on at work and things like that. But I will say I hold two side projects near and dear to my heart. One is a website called dailytexascountry.com. Big fan of Texas country music. And I made this website to try to build community around it. I make weekly YouTube videos and I post them to this website. I do album reviews, all sorts of stuff. And it's Texas themed. So if you go to the landing page, it looks like a giant Texas flag. And I just... I'm so proud every time I open the website. I think it's so cool. And in the same vein as my personal website, I just gave it a facelift. I redid the homepage to highlight more of what I do. It's bradgarapy.com. And that's just been the site that I've learned web development on. That's gone through a lot of iterations, a lot of different technology changes, and it's gotten better as I've gotten better. I think those types of projects that either you're passionate about or help you learn are probably some of the most important. So Brad, I know you recently redid your personal website in a new front-end framework. What's your favorite front-end framework? Yeah, so I did this wild experiment. My personal website was built in Gatsby and it's a Markdown blog. And I rebuilt the entire thing in Next.js. And I sat back and I looked at it and I was like, hmm, which one do I like better? And after all the effort and time that I put into converting to Next.js, I said, no, I think I'll stick with Gatsby and deleted the branch. So it's built on Gatsby. And I think for use cases like that, for markdown parsing and making pages out of it, Gatsby is the best choice for that type of application. But for any other like web application, it's Next.js hands down. I just think Gatsby has a very special niche that it's very good at. This would get real interesting real fast because I was going <laughs> to circle back and double down on the personal website project. So Amy is actually working on a complete redesign. We've done a couple of episodes talking about our relationship and starting from the scratch and exploratory call and then looking at some mood boards together and then looking at the first design that she sent over last week, which has been a ton of fun. And the plan for that that I actually just posted on Twitter today is that not only will I do the redesign in code, but I'm also going to migrate from Gatsby to Next.js. I think specifically, though, the difference will be I'm not using embedded markdown. So I'm using Sanity as my headless CMS. And I think, Brad, yeah. like some of the issues you had were specific to embedded markdown. So hopefully I don't have those. And I started doing a little bit of scaffolding out some stuff last night. So I set up a query using Apollo query for the first time, connected to the GraphQL layer in Sanity, and then doing the static paths in Next.js to create each of those individual pages. And so far, so good. I literally have just done like the most basic stuff. And then I'll be able to copy over a lot of the code from the Gatsby stuff. But I'm really looking forward to that new design, fresh start. It's one of those things I feel like you build a project, you add a bunch of stuff and it gets a little out of hand quickly. If you start from scratch, now you get to pick and choose. Do I really need the stuff that I've been adding over all this time? So I'm excited about that. That will be a complete migration from Gatsby to Next.js. It's kind of interesting you decided to go with GraphQL instead of Grok. Yeah, and I can respond to that if that's a question. <laughs> yeah, and let's explain it too. So with Sanity, out of the box, they have a language they call Grok, which allows you to ping the server and grab all of the information. It looks very similar to what you might get with GraphQL. And then GraphQL is not proprietary, and you can have Sanity export or spit out GraphQL instead. So 
I'm going to let you answer, but I'm going to assume that maybe you went with GraphQL because that's what you get from Gatsby. That That's part of it, but it's not the only reason. The bigger reason is just in the future, I want to be as agnostic as possible. Most headless CMS options now have GraphQL, but Grok is more specifically implemented. It's actually an open source thing. So it's a query language for JSON. So it, you could in theory yeah. use it with other products, but they would have to support it, which I, I don't really know that any of them do. So by using GraphQL and Apollo or like React Query or SWR or whatever, in theory, I could like completely migrate my entire backend to another headless CMS and or just any GraphQL layer and not really have to change much. So that was the specific reason that I decided to stick with GraphQL. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I did not realize that Grok was open source. Yeah. Very cool. I didn't realize that you could put GraphQL on top of Sanity and that Grok language has caused me so many headaches. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm kind of sad right now, but also excited for the future. <laughs> yeah, so in Sanity, it's an additional command that you have to run to deploy a GraphQL layer. So I think it's like Sanity GraphQL deploy. So if you have the code locally, then you can run that command and it'll give you that GraphQL API. In my brain, the little star thing from TV, the more you know. <laughs> <laughs> and now you yeah. know. That's half the battle. So I know everybody's thinking already, they're like, Svelkit, right? And I'm going to say, no, it's Jekyll. And that's weird Jekyll. because Jekyll just holds a special place in my heart because like back in the day with GitHub, I don't even think it was GitHub pages. You could host a Jekyll blog on GitHub if you set up your GitHub a certain way. And it was only like your yep. main GitHub repo. You had to have it like under your username, I think. And I remember sitting at a Starbucks after going to a Barnes and Noble and getting a book on Rails and messing around with Ruby on Rails and being amazed at the scaffolding that Ruby on Rails would do. And then like finding out about Jekyll and being like, this is just amazing. This is the best thing ever. And so while I don't use Jekyll currently, it's one of my favorites just because of the special place it holds in my heart. But there's always Svelkit. Gatsby's amazing too. I think it has a lot of special sauce that is Gatsby specific. I'm not sure I like it that much. But yeah, that's where I'm at there. Did you go, Amy? I have not. I am going to go the totally expected response and say next.js. I just love it. My personal site, selfteach.me, is on Next. The compressed.fm site is on Next. And I'm just super comfortable in Next. And I love that you can do stuff on the server, do stuff statically. I've almost gotten to the point where I will run Create Next, their setup system over, say, like Create React app. I use Next as my starting point, even if it's something very small that I'm just doing for a demo. But I will say one that I have been wanting to experiment with is 11T. I've heard more and more things about it and just how neat that is in terms of kind of that purest mindset that we've talked about. Another option that came up recently is astro.build. It's definitely in the same vein as 11D, but the main differentiator there is 11D uses some template languages like Nunjux, EJS, things like that to create your pages, whereas astro.build actually allows you to use React or Vue or whatever kind of front-end framework you'd like to scaffold out your pages with the same mindset of at the end of the day, we're going to generate something static for you. And I do think we're coming back around to whether that be server rendered or static websites with a little bit of JavaScript thrown in to add that interactivity or data fetching rather than rendering on the client. And I just think that's where things are going. It's hilarious to me. They talk about fads, like things that were hot in the 80s now are coming back and stuff like it's the exact same in web development. Like Ruby on Rails was so revolutionary and it was server-side rendered everything and then we got into spas and it was react and angular and Vue. 
And then now we're like, yeah, that's great. But like, we also want to go back to have the server side rendered stuff, which is why Next.js, as an example, and Next.js and SvelteKit are so great because they give you that flexibility. And actually, Brad, you mentioned Astro. Cassidy Williams actually gave a, a presentation in my Discord last week, earlier this week. This week, I, can, I don't know, time flies. And it was really wild because you can just choose whatever framework you want to build your components in. React, Angular, Vue, or I think Angular, but React and Vue at least, Svelte. And you can just combine them in one project, which is wild. And it completely exports statically unless you want to have JavaScript. Yeah. And then I think it compiles down to vanilla JavaScript at that point, which is so cool. Like that's pretty mind blowing. And I was surprised I hadn't heard more about it. So I'm really curious to see what that looks like in a couple of years as well. One thing I do think is interesting is we've talked about all these different technologies, all these different frameworks, but the thing that we keep coming back to is how we love that purist mindset. We've talked about that with vanilla CSS and even with some of these front end tooling, just having that, I want to write HTML, I want to write CSS, it's just kind of funny. So you're using all these fancy new frameworks like Astro, but what happens when you're not sure if they work or not? So let's talk about what your favorite testing tools are. You do jest test cypress unit testing integration test end-to-end or do you yolo it and do no testing tests question mark i test in production (laughs) because (laughs) non-production data is not valid so you test in production that's the way to go right like if it works on my computer it's done (laughs) i like doing test-driven development honestly i think this kind of goes back to like something you mentioned about typescript brad where like you do this work up front and it's annoying and hard to do those tests sometimes upfront. And it's really that negative feedback loop of, hey, I'm going to write some code and it's going to tell me it doesn't work. Fantastic. Now let's go make it work. And I like doing that. I mentioned that I'm getting kind of into the blockchain space and there's a book I'm going through right now and they do a lot of test-driven development there. I think it's like a derivative of the Mocha framework. And so it's all JavaScript stuff and that feels familiar. And seeing the process of creating a smart contract and having that test fail because you don't have that contract and then having it pass once you create the contract, like it helps, especially when you're learning something new in this case. And I just like that at the end of the day, it's not a to-do item and technical debt that you're going to have to deal with. You're already done. Your tests are there. If something breaks them because they were working. And so that's my stance on it is that do them up front, even though they're annoying, then they're done. I'll jump in as probably the least experience with testing here. When I was at FedEx, like that was something that I wanted to jump us into like we didn't have any automated tests at all when I was at FedEx on our team. And so we ended up doing like some tests on our back end and Java and Spring Boot and then some tests on the Angular side on the front end. But we never culturally would fully adopt it to get the value out of testing that it promises. Tests are really good if you actually take it seriously and that's part of your culture and that's part of your workflow. If you're mixing and matching, like if some people are doing it occasionally and some people aren't, It's basically worthless because if you have tests that run in your automated builds and stuff and they fail and instead of fixing it, you ignore it, you've just shot the entire process in the foot and it's really not providing you that much value. So I haven't written that many tests. I will say like in terms of different types of tests, unit integration end to end, I think the thing that is most telling is end to end testing. I want to see the front end connect to an API on the back end. I want to see it populate data in the database. I want to see stuff get updated correctly. I think that sort of stuff is really telling. And to a certain extent, unit tests can be a little overly hyped. In theory, you're supposed to write more unit tests, less integration tests, and less end-to-end tests because you're supposed to catch those things earlier. 
And some of the unit tests I think can be redundant at times, but for specific things and functions with tricky logic, I think it's really good, but I want to start up a whole application. I want to see a database populated. I want to see stuff get updated. I want to see stuff get reflected in a UI. So if I were looking at passing a build process, unit tests are, are definitely going to be a part of that, but I also want it to run through the entire thing and see all the different pieces connected to each other. I will say like unit tests, they definitely can be overhyped, like you mentioned, but I also like the fact that they give you the ability to abstract out pieces of your code and reuse it and know that you have the test for that. And also if you change something, they can point you to which piece is broken very quickly. I agree with that. Yeah. Unit testing is the type of test that I'm most familiar with. Jest and React testing library make it very easy to test React components. And when everything is broken up into a component, you can check off that to-do item of, okay, I did the component and I did the test, check. Another thing I really like about unit testing is that it can provide code coverage statistics. And that way I get like that warm and fuzzy feeling that says I'm at least running through all these lines in my code. Now I understand that code coverage is not the holy grail of what means a good test and all, but it does give me the warm and fuzzies when I see lots of green on my screen. And at least it makes me know I did my due diligence to the best of my ability of getting this thing tested. When it comes to end-to-end -end testing, I think tools like Cypress are really helpful. But to me, I think that would only hit the main flows of whatever application I'm working and make sure those are really solid. I wouldn't try to do every single thing in the web app with end-to-end -end testing. How do you test, Amy? I'm going to answer this differently and talk about visual tests, which is pretty cool. So if you're not familiar, a visual test will go in after you've done all of your work on your page, it'll render out an image of your web browser. And then the next time you update your code, it will compare the new image with the old image. So when you're writing CSS, you can tell, did this break in other areas that I wasn't aware of? So it's incredibly helpful because a lot of times when you're doing testing, say with JavaScript, you're testing to see if values are there. You're not necessarily testing to see if it looks correct. And that's where your visual tests come in handy because you can have everything working, but it looked terrible and broken on the front end. One of the things that I'm the most interested about, I saw Angie Jones tweet the other day about an integration with Appla Tools, which does a lot of visual testing and they have integrations with Netlify and they're getting ready to release integrations with Vercel just right out of the box. So I think that that's really cool. Excited about looking into that. Yeah, the only other tool that I actually know of that does visual testing is Chromatic, which is partnered with Storybook, where if you have your components inside of Storybook, Chromatic as a service will run and do visual regression testing. But yeah, Apple Tools, Chromatic, those are really the only two that I know that do visual testing. Are you familiar with any other types of tools? Those are the two that I've used. I've done visual testing with Cypress, but it's an integration with I think Apple tools. So it's not really Cypress that's running it. It might be Cypress that generates the test. And they were finicky the last time I tried to experiment with them, but I think that they've come a long way since then. Yeah. And they always say a flaky test is a useless test. Yes. Got to get rid of them. <laughs> that's what I say every morning I wake up. Unless you're talking about croissants <laughs> and then the only test is a flaky test. As we've talked about all these fun tools and frameworks like Apple tools and testing and all this stuff, sometimes it's hard to stay up to date on what the latest and the greatest is. And so I think in general, I mean, we create content. We have favorite content creators that are out there. Richard, who's your favorite content creator? So my favorite content creator right now is probably Jason Langsdorf from Learn with Jason. 
And I think it's just because he does a fantastic job of introducing you to so many different pieces of the web development environment. And also because he has Corgi rubber ducks, which are amazing. You got and one. yeah, I have a Corgi, so I have to have the Corgi rubber duck. And so it's amazing. And it's just fun. And I really like that. You can go in there for like about an hour and just kind of put it on the background and tune in when it gets like super interesting and there's ridiculous things that happen and boops and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, that's what I'm gonna go with. How about you, James? Jason is awesome. First of all, we actually just had him as a quote on our podcast that released recently. His content is really amazing. I will probably pick Chris Sev on Twitter and him and Kapehe have been starting a new platform called better.dev and Chris had created Scotch.io, which is the, the website that I wrote articles for a year or two, which is really awesome before they got bought out by DigitalOcean. And now he's creating a brand new platform called better.dev. And all the content that Chris creates is amazing. His design and his landing pages are incredible. Everything he does just like legitimately 100% just turns to gold. And he decided he was going to take that content and make it a course platform with Stripe and all zero for users and all these different things. And like in two weeks, he turned it around and like he launched his course platform with all that stuff. And I just look at him because I feel like I create a lot of content, but I look at the stuff that he's capable of doing in such a short time and making it look so amazing. And I'm just always in awe. I really enjoy just getting to talk to him and catch up and pick his brain on the stuff that he does and learn from him and ride his wake sometimes of imitating some of the stuff that he does because everything he does just turns to gold. So as for me, I think my favorite content creators are the ones that turn into friends. I just have this knack, I feel like, for reaching out to the people who I like their content, striking up conversation, and next thing you know, we're hanging out on a podcast together. James, honestly, like one of my longtime internet buddies and the content you create is fantastic. Richard, I love reading your blog and Amy, your YouTube videos are like A+. A couple others I'll just shout out is Scott Talinsky, that guy manages to stay on the bleeding edge of technology and pump out so many courses. I can't believe there's a new one every single month. So those are some of my favorite content creators. I just think friends in the end. I feel like I'm copying you, but I'm going to give Scott a shout out as well. Just kind of what you said, he stays on the bleeding cutting edge of everything. And I think the main reason that he comes to mind, and even though I feel like he's the cliche answer, we've already referenced him a couple of times, but he's also the one that I probably learned from the most. If I want to learn a new topic, that's the first place I go is level up tutorials to see if he has a course on it. And we talked about TypeScript earlier. That's where I've recently been going to level up on that particular subject. So definitely shout out to Scott. We appreciate the content that you create. It's kind of cool, I think, where content creation has gone in the last couple of years. And I feel really awkward saying this, but some of the upside of COVID is like more people are creating content, more people are investing in creating content more people are getting creative with like events and stuff. So you have more virtual opportunities, but there's so many freaking amazing content creators that are like either just getting started or have only been around and doing content for the last year or so. And that's just been really cool. I'll give a community shout out to the programming YouTubers discord that I'm in. And it's a bunch of different content creators. Like I could name drop for days of the people that are in there. But it's so cool because you've got people like everything from like 500 subscribers on a channel to like a million to 2 million subscribers. And everybody's just in it together. Like we share tips and tricks and we have monthly meetups where we just hang out and chat and share tips and things. 
it's just such a great community. And I think that's been the coolest thing to be a part of. And Brad, to your point, I was going to shout out everybody on here and I decided not to, and I should have, because then you got to do the special awe friend moment. But like everyone has so much really amazing stuff to offer that it's just so cool that everyone also has the ability to share that stuff by either building out their own platform for blog or using an existing platform, creating videos, doing live streams, doing podcasts. That is so freaking exciting to me. I will say too, I don't know, I feel like I'm the novice of the content creation space here. And it blows my mind how you mentioned in COVID in this Discord group, how people who would be like content creator celebrities these days, right? Given all these different platforms that we have, like Twitter, Discord, and everything like that, they're actually approachable and they're actually people. So like, I know that sounds dumb, right? That they're actually people, but they really are. And it blows my mind sometimes to be like, oh, hey, I can just tweet at James and somebody who's just watched his videos. I've never talked to him or anything. And he'll respond. And that's like, what? You know, if you think about historically, like imagine trying to get in contact with Bob Ross back when Bob Ross was around, you'd watch his video and you're like, man, I really like to know what size brush he uses. How am I going to figure that out? Right. And it's just kind of amazing. Like the community that is web development now and the people who are just putting all this information out there and that you can just talk to them. I think it's awesome. One of the cool things that James and I've talked about being a part of tech, anything is just everybody being willing to share their knowledge and expertise. There's not too many other fields that do that. A lot of times people want to hold on to their proprietary software or whatever, but we have a whole spectrum, a whole category of open source software where everybody's just contributing and sharing. And it goes along with the content creation, sharing their knowledge and expertise. And that's just a really special thing that a lot of other industries don't have. All right. So those were our opinions on the world's hottest topics and web development. That was actually a lot of fun. Like it's cool to learn from other people's experiences and preferences and all of that stuff. Typically on the Compressed FM podcast, we round out with a series of picks and plugs where we pick something that we enjoy that we want to share. And then we also share something that we want to plug of ours, a YouTube video, a podcast episode, maybe, or something that we've created. Or if you want to highlight something from a community member, you can do that. We're going to do our picks a little bit different today. We've restricted ourselves to our desk slash office. Pick something that is on your desk or in your office that you like and are really excited about to share. Brad, as a guest of the Compressed FM podcast, although we're guests on your podcast, so I don't know how this works. Do you want to kick us off with your picks and plugs? For sure. I'm honored to be doing picks and plugs. So little backstory, my parents came and visited the other weekend and they brought down a giant tub of Legos from my childhood. So we got to build Legos all weekend with my parents and my kids. And I built this awesome like rescue helicopter. And I'm sure it's like bringing back memories for a lot of people. We'll post a picture of this in the show notes so y'all can see, but I've just been staring at it like, whoa, this is the coolest thing ever. As for my plug, I just hit 500 subscribers on my YouTube channel. And that's a big milestone. You know, it goes 100, 500, and then I think it goes right to a million. So youtube.com slash Brad Let's get me to a million. <laughs> Love it. Richard, what about you? So my pick is going to be my co-working buddy, the Rainbow Corgi from Learn With Jason, because it's amazing and it brings me joy just sitting here. I try to Marie Kondo my desk every day. And this sparks joy. As far as plugs go, I don't know if this counts as a plug for y'all, but I'm going to say Dead Trees because I've bought some actual physical books recently and they're amazing. Everyone should buy physical books. I'm sorry, trees. 
<laughs> the one book I've bought recently is from one of my best friends wrote and published a book. So that's the first actual hardback book I've bought. I read a ton on my Kindle. So yeah, let's go books. <laughs> I have a Kindle too and I love it, but there's just something, I don't know, when it comes to like learning, physical books are better for me. Enjoyment, Kindles are amazing. I'm going way off now. I'm picking a Kindle too, but that's not on my desk. All right, Amy, you're up. Yes, I'm going to pick post-its. I know this might sound like a super old school pick. Well, you picked dead trees, so maybe not. But I have a white desk and I have colorful post-it notes everywhere. And they've just been perfect for every morning I get up and I write MIT, most important thing, and write three things that I want to get done for the day. And that sticks in front of me on my computer. And so that helps me focus during the day to stay on task. During meetings, I'll take notes on post-its and stick them everywhere. My kids come in, they'll draw over post-it notes. So my desk is covered in post-it notes. And I just love the color that it brings, but also just the ability to shuffle ideas and thoughts around and again, keep me focused on the day. So I would say a post-it. For my plug, I'm going to plug my Twitch channel. That's twitch.tv slash selfteachme. And currently I am streaming every morning, every weekday morning, Monday through Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. Central. So that's just been a really good way for me to start my day. I've met some really fun people in the chat and also been able to work on some fun side projects that we talked about earlier. And recently I've had a couple of guests, so that's been fun just to connect and learn from other people. James, what about you? Sweet. Well, first of all, like on the MIT, the most important thing, that's a great idea. I keep a to-do list and kind of prioritize and take a look every morning, but I love the most important thing. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. My favorite thing, I feel like a content creator now, my favorite thing on my desk is my portable TikTok recording stand. So it's a tripod. It's actually a selfie stick that kind of has like a tripod base. You can set it on your desk. It can extend up and down. You can hold it like a selfie stick if you want. It also has on the side of it, it has a cold shoe mount. So I've got like a light mounted on it. And then I've got a clip on the top that holds my phone. And that has another cold shoe mount where I can have a microphone plugged in. And then I have an adapter where I can run audio into my phone and then also listen to the audio out of it, which is like a whole thing that we've been through. We've actually talked about this on a couple of our previous episodes with my individual picks, but this whole thing as my portable TikTok stand has been a lot of fun to kind of put together and work with. And for my plug, I'll just stay in the same vein and I will plug my TikTok account, James C. Quick on TikTok. And I've been doing most days during the week, do a new video and just kind of share some sort of like developer satire most of the time, which is fun to just be kind of like weird and quirky and hopefully funny. So James Quick on TikTok. Okay, so it was great hearing all the picks and plugs. Thanks for tuning in to Web Dev Weekly. Brad, come on. Compressed FM. We've been through this before. I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> that's all we got. <laughs> that's all, and that's we all got. we got. <laughs>